chapter 14 of Mark. Now the Passover and unleavened bread was two days off. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him, that is Jesus, by stealth and to kill him. For they were saying, not during this festival, lest there be a riot of the people. Jesus has just finished a long section speaking about um, times to come. And, and that has also included uh, what will happen to him even this week that he is now in. And this narrative of, of the passion is, is something that, that really impacts us as believers individually, because indeed it is the story of God's redemption being worked out. Let's, let's go on. Verse three. And while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignant, remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For the poor, you always have with you. And whenever you wish, you can do them good, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached, and in the whole world, that also which this woman has done shall be spoken of in memory of her. Here they are, home of Simon the leper. They are, Jesus is well aware of what lies ahead of him. He references it here in how he understands what this woman has done for him. He, know that his, he knows that his death is imminent. But on the on that first step into this week, what is he doing? Where, where is he? He's at a dinner party. <laughs> He's here in the home of Simon the leper, and he is there as the guest of honor. And it's interesting that Simon the leper is probably very likely a leper that Jesus healed. We do not know for certain, uh, who this gentleman is, but you can count on the fact that he would not be having a dinner party if he was still a leper, right? Early on in Jesus' ministry, in fact, we see it in the first chapter of Mark, um, we see the story of Jesus encountering a leper. Uh, Mark records, and a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him, saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. 
and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. That story is so profound when you stop to think about the reality that in that day, leprosy was a, was a disease that caused individual, individuals to be outcasts in society. In other words, no one was supposed to touch them. Can you imagine that kind of loneliness, that kind of um, of separation from people even that you love. And here we see Jesus, this, this leper comes to him saying, if, if you're willing, you can make me clean. What a statement of faith. And I love the fact that Jesus not only says, I am willing, but he reaches out and he touches the leper. And of course, he is cleansed. I have to say, that's an awful lot like us, right? We come in our, in our own filth and depravity before the Lord, and we say, Lord, you can make me clean if you're willing. And of course, Jesus is willing. Scripture says he was moved with compassion. And in his willingness, he reaches out and touches us. We know that the Lord, long before even we had a clue that we needed him, came in precise reason to touch us. Even in our depravity. That is, that is the glory of the good news. Jesus comes to make us clean. So here they are in the home of this man who's experienced this amazing miracle. We don't know for sure it's, if it's the same leper that is spoken about in this first chapter of Mark. But we know that this man has been cleansed. He is there before his healer. Now we also see here a woman. And she comes. She's, she doesn't have a name in, in Mark's gospel. But she comes and breaks all the rules. She breaks the boundaries of custom and, and tradition. You see, it was, it was common in that day that a guest of honor would, would indeed be anointed on the head with a, a, one or two drops of perfumed oil. It was a, it was a courtesy, an honor given to, to a guest. But what we see here is that this woman comes and no, she's not just leaving a couple drops. She breaks the neck off of this alabaster jar and pours the contents onto Jesus' head. Way outside the boundaries of what was common. Now, who is this woman? We have to, we have to ask that question. Um, the Reality is that, is that there are three instances within the New Testament in which Jesus was anointed with perfumed oil. It is, it is uh, easy to get them mixed up. The first one we see is early in Jesus' ministry. We see it in Luke chapter 7. Again, when an unnamed woman comes into the home of another man named Simon. But this Simon is a Pharisee. And in that context, 
um, she begins to pour out perfumed, scented oil on the feet of Jesus. And she wipes his feet with her hair. And of course, Simon is a Pharisee. He has other Pharisees with him there in his room or in his home. And they, they're not worried about the value of the, the perfume. They're worried about the fact that this woman is doing this to Jesus. And they go and, and accuse him by these words. If this man, if he was really a prophet, he would know who it is that is touching him right now. In other words, this woman was a woman of ill repute. And the Pharisees would say that she is also an untouchable. The beauty of that situation is that Jesus not only allows her to do that, but he instructs the Pharisees with a story. He says, you know, um, if there were two men who, who had borrowed money from a lender, and one of them had borrowed 50 denarii, and one of them had borrowed 500 denarii, but both of them came to the lender and said to him, hey, we can't pay our bill. I'm sorry. We just, there's no way we can pay our bill. And the lender, as a result, forgives the debt. Which one of them is going to love the lender more? Well, of course, these are Pharisees, right? They're smart guys. They can do the math, right? Absolutely. They're quick to say, well, the one who was forgiven more. Aha. Uh -huh. Jesus instructs them just in the same manner. The one who is forgiven much loves much. And that is precisely what happened there in Luke 7. The pouring out of love upon Jesus. And he, in that moment, declares the woman's sin forgiven. The second instance that we have of, of anointing in this manner is uh, found in John chapter 12. This is uh, the, the, in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Remember, they are very good friends of Jesus. They live in Bethany. And we know that Bethany, uh, about a month ago, we had a map that we showed you where Bethany is. It's on the backside of the Mount of Olives. And um, they're, they're six days before the Passover. Mary comes and again anoints Jesus' feet. I think these two stories get mixed up in, in um, the minds of a lot of people who are wishing to be familiar with the Bible. In fact, I, we recently had a film made that was a, a movie made that mixes these up. And they paint Mary, the sister of Martha and, and, and Lazarus, as a scandalous woman. No, these are two completely different situations. Here we see Mary anointing Jesus' feet and also wiping his feet with her hair. But it's six days before the Passover. In fact, it's right before, um, right before the, the, uh, the bringing in of, of Jesus' triumphal entry into 
the city of Jerusalem. Now, here we see, we see in Mark 14, another woman. She is unnamed, but it is in a different home at a different time. It's noted, it's two days before the Passover. And they are in the home of Simon the leper. In each case, we see the, the, uh, the pouring out of love and gratitude upon Jesus. But it's also merged with this strong emotion we identify as grief. It's intuitive love being expressed in a moment that is, um, is very tender. And, and we see that the disciples begin to pick this apart. And they, they accuse the woman of being wasteful. But Jesus responds, no, this isn't waste. This is beauty being poured out. And not only does he say that, he establishes her name as, a, a, as an ongoing memorial. Wherever the gospel is preached. Now, the, the complaints that were brought against her were that the, the, the oil was wasted. And it could have been sold for, for a lot of money and the money given to the poor. Both criticisms are, okay, they, they perhaps could be valid if spiritual truth is limited to ritual. In a ritual, a drop is as good as a whole flask full of oil, right? It's the symbol that counts. And logically, the opportunity to anoint then many is better than the anointing of one. The, the person who is fixated on ritual is also fixated upon tradition. And it was tradition on the eve of the Passover to give alms to the poor. And so perhaps in that context, we can understand, quote unquote, the criticism levied against the woman. It's interesting here that, again, Jesus, Jesus takes what is happening and here's the criticism and the criticism is not only f focused on the woman, but it's then also focused on Jesus. Criticism is a um, very delicate instrument. It's kind of like a scalpel. In the hands of a surgeon, the scalpel can cut and healing is the result. But a scalpel in the, the hands of someone who is not skilled, not purposeful, can not only injure, but even kill. So we need to be careful with criticism. More often than not, harm is done with criticism because people are unable to separate people from principles. And indeed, we see that's happening here as well. 
because they begin to ridicule her. They begin to, to castigate this woman personally in their criticism of what is happening. And I think we have to say, criticism often tells us more about the critic than it does about the situation. Criticism, in this instance, exposes the motive. This pretense of, of, of loving the poor exposes the heart of selfishness. And Jesus responds instead with eternal tribute to the woman. He characterizes the woman, woman's actions as appropriate, an act of devotion, and timely. Indeed, he says, he says that she has anointed my body for burial. She's done what she could. Interesting here that, that he identifies here, this is an honest act of, of love and devotion. She did what she could. And truly, that's, that's all that God desires of us. When we come before him in worship, he says, bring who you are. Bring what you have. I have to say that uh, it seems as though the story of the, the widow who gave just two cents in the offering um, comes to mind here. Here we see the procession of, of wealthy people coming and, and um, bringing attention to the fact that they are giving. And then comes along this woman who is poor. And she gives two cents. And Jesus' response in that moment is to recognize she's given more than all the others put together because she gave all she had. And that's what Jesus desires of us, that we simply bring who we are and what we have, yielding our lives to him. Again, without knowing it, Jesus recognizes that the woman prepares his body for burial. It's the prelude to the dark hour to come. Indeed, it's preparation for death and burial. And that is the prelude to resurrection. Death has to happen in order for resurrection to take place. That's where we are going. We celebrate the resurrection in two weeks. But first we have to be here. Let's look at verse 10. And Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him. And they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. It's interesting that Mark uh, sandwiches the, this act of love and devotion between the, the, uh, the plot of the uh, scribes and Pharisees and Judas' acceptance or being a part of that plot. Take note that 
Mark says that he went. This was a very voluntary decision on Judah's part. It wasn't something that, that um, happened uh, by chance. Very intentionally, he went. And so you have to ask the question, why? I mean, Judas had followed Jesus. He was part of this band of disciples for, for these three years of ministry with Jesus. And he had seen the miracles. He had seen the testimony of, of Jesus being the Messiah. Why in the world would he do what he's doing? Well, I mean, we see right here is that they offered him money. Jesus may, or Judas may have been motivated by money. The previous conversation about the oil and selling it for, um, for uh, gain may have been there, even with the pretense of giving that gain to the poor. We know that Judas was the one who was kind of the money keeper among the disciples, and who knows? Maybe he had embezzlement in mind, a little skim off the top here and there. It's very likely as well that it's reasonable to think that perhaps part of the motivation that, that was at work here, honestly, um, could have been demon possession. Luke uh, uh, and John both invite that kind of thought in that, in that the devil entered in. They record that the devil entered into Judas. But we have to, we have to take note here that, that um, Judas isn't simply the victim of a demonic takeover. Because it's an empty heart or an evil heart that invites the enemy in. A fourth possibility, and again, this is speculation, but a fourth possibility for motivation is the fact that Judas is a zealot. He, he has this nationalistic thing going on, and it is very possible that he thought his actions would push Jesus over the edge and cause him to, to indeed take the throne as the king that they had been looking for a political figure who would take control of the, the situation there in Judea. All of those could be possibilities. We don't know for sure, but we do know what happened. We don't know exactly why it happened. Look at verse 12 with me. And on the first day of unleavened bread... When the Passover lamb is being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will greet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready and prepare for us there. Does this sound at all familiar to you? Back in, in chapter 11, we, we had the... the uh, 
the story of the triumphal entry. Do you remember how Jesus uh, was very specific about his instructions there to, to go and find the foal of a donkey? And he was, he was very specific about that. And why was he specific? He was specific because he knew that he was about to be the fulfillment of prophecy. And we see it here again as well. Now, in, in that instance, we see Zechariah uh, chapter 13. In verse 6, we read, And one will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? Then he will say, Those which I was wo- with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Jesus is about to partake in this Passover meal with his friends. And even there, we see the betrayal in the house of his friends. So going on, verse 16, and the disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Again, there it is, house of my friends. Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be grieved and, said, and, and to say to him, one by one, surely not I. And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Again, this fulfillment of prophecy is at work. Um, in, the, in this moment... In this moment where Jesus uncovers the betrayal that is about to take place, we see that Jesus appeals several times, several times perhaps to Judas, giving him an opportunity to turn around. Judas joins in with all of the rest of the disciples in asking this question, is it I? In that he feigns innocence, this pretense that he brings. He, he, he's operating in deceit. And it even becomes more specific. Jesus says, um, it is one of the 12, one who dips with me in the bowl. You see, in that, in that cultural um, that cultural space in which they lived, that's the way they, they had meals together. It was a common bowl. And perhaps, you know, there's 12 guys, 13 counting Jesus, around this, this table. And so it means that the one who dips in the bowl with Jesus must have been pretty close to him. 
because they were able to reach the bowl together. Jesus, again, is very specific. And, and it, again, it's an opportunity for Judas to turn around. There seems to be a choice. Jesus says, for the son of man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. You see, What's inevitable for Jesus by virtue of the fact that he is surrendering himself to the purposes of God very intently is not inevitable for Judas. It's as if Jesus continues to give him a choice. And, and that is important for us. Judas did not have to be the betrayer. And in this moment, looking at that, we have to unpack this picture of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. You understand that, that, that the will of God is not always just signed, sealed, delivered. We tend to operate with this fatalistic view of the will of God. Have you ever heard somebody say, um, well, whatever happens is God's will? Seriously? God is not manipulating things. He does not, he does not um, put us in situations where we have no choice. No, that is part of the image of God in us and that we have the opportunity to make choices. And even here, in this very instant, we see that. Judas had a choice. Jesus had a choice. We're going to see that a little later. Let's look at verse 22. And while they were eating, he took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks... He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I shall never drink again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus is bringing about the purposes of God. And he, it is symbolized here in the brand new covenant that he is ushering in. Previously, God's covenant was that uh, an animal should be slain in order to cover the sins of the sinner. And it is blood sacrifice that is required. This new covenant, this new covenant is one in which Jesus offers his own life once for all. Once for all. 
And that is a brand new idea in God's purpose being worked out right here. He, and he is fulfilling what is written of him as Messiah. Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Isaiah 52 and 53, Daniel 9, Zechariah 13, all speak of what is about to take place. And Jesus is putting his own will to work. He is choosing to move forward, trusting that God's purpose is ultimately good, even though it leads through this pathway of suffering and death. Again, he is freely choosing this. And Jesus chooses to honor God, even in the face of great suffering. Verse 27. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. He's talking about the resurrection, isn't he? That's where we're ultimately headed. But we have to go here first. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. Don't you love Peter? He's so out there. He just puts it out there. This is my commitment. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you that you yourself, you very specifically, Peter, this very night before the cock crows twice shall Deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, he doubles down. He doubles down on his commitment. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing too. So the rest of the disciples are, are in it with him. All of them will deny him. We have to understand that all of us are capable of that. Every single one of us. And the disciples will be scattered as a result. They will deny their Lord. It's important for us to understand that these are the friends of Jesus. These are the his disciples. And the friends of Jesus honor or deny him either by their word or in their deeds, either in what they say or in what they do. Unfortunately, the denial that we partake in very often is uncovered in what we do. It's easy to say the words, it's harder to live it out. Again, Peter's declaration is doubling down. Truthfully, we know that his intention was good. He makes this pledge because his intentions are good. 
But he doesn't know. He doesn't know the, the end result of his own capability. And it's the same with us. Our intentions may be good, but when we're under pressure, in some respects, all bets are off. It's under pressure that we encounter this place of having to remain true or allow ourselves to go where we thought we never would go in denial of Jesus. None of us know exactly how we're going to to respond under pressure. Speaking of pressure, let's go on to verse 32. And they came to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane. Just guess what that means. Speaking of pressure. Gethsemane actually means to press. It was a place where, where the fruit of the vine, the grapes were pressed. It is it's a place where the olives from the olive tree were pressed. A place of great pressure. And, and he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And, they t- and he took with him Peter, James, and John, that inner circle, and began to be very distressed and troubled. The reality is that the English language doesn't really do this justice. The, those words, very distressed and troubled, have the, have the picture of absolute terror associated with them. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and he fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. Again, did Jesus have a choice? Why would he be praying this prayer if he did not? have a choice. Verse 36, and he was saying, Abba, Father. Abba. Does your Bible say, does it have an exclamation mark after Abba and an exclamation mark after Father? No? Some of you do have. It's too... It's two distinctive words, and Abba is that word that means daddy. If you go to Jerusalem in the streets of the city, you will hear little children crying out, Abba, Abba. It means daddy. The expression of a child. And here we see Jesus crying out, Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Understand that Jesus is is uncovering here the fact that he is 
at the end of his human resources. And all he can do is fall back into the arms of his Abba, his father, his daddy, and trust that, that in this moment of great distress, the love of God itself will carry him through. Carry him through. And then he says, not my will, but yours. He is saying, this is truly not what I want to go through. But I trust you and your will, your purposes. I trust you absolutely. Have you ever been at that place where you can only say, God, only you know. My circumstances are so out of control. My life is beset by such roller coaster of emotions. And we simply say, God, I'm in your hands. That's where Jesus is. That's where Jesus is right now. Verse 37, and he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? You ever got a phone call in the middle of the night? Hello, did I wake you up? Um, if you're, if you're quick witted, you say, no, no, you didn't wake me up. I had to get up to answer the phone anyway. It's, it's almost humorous. Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation and then he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, for years, I read that statement, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, as kind of a rebuke. But in this context, I think rather than a rebuke, it's a recognition of, Peter, of, of the disciples' own weakness. Jesus isn't angry. He's just acknowledging reality. Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. There is temptation waiting at the door. And Jesus is very clear saying, be on the lookout. Be watching. Be waiting. Be because temptation is crouching at the door. Verse 39. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And he, again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Have you ever been that in that place? I Guilty as charged. I have no answer for you. I'm at the end of my resources and I have no answer for you. And he came the third time and said to them, verse 41, 
Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Is it enough that the hour has come? Behold, the Son of Man is, is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. It's as if right at this moment, Jesus sees the torches coming. They're coming up the path. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. I think we have to understand that honest prayer before the Lord is never, it's never really easy. It's, it's never quick. It's never really simple. It's full of complexities and it's prolonged and it's difficult. The labor of prayer Would the, would the Lord call us to that? I believe he would. And now Jesus gets up. He sees his betrayer coming. And the time for prayer is over. His agony there in the garden is set behind him. And his mind is clear. His emotions are strong and well under control and his will is set like a laser on doing God's will. Pursuing God's purposes. Verse 43, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, came up and accompanied accompanied by the multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, he who was betraying him had given him a signal saying, whomever I shall kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. It's interesting to me that, that though, um, though this, this crowd started, yes, indeed, um, with the, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, it was probably the temple guard that, that was here. But it, it, the connotation is that they came, they came with clubs and swords. It's almost as if they, they picked up a bunch of rebels on their way in. They, they, they brought along with them a crowd. And I have to ask, I'm wondering whether there were any in that crowd that were also in the crowd just a few days ago who hailed Jesus as king. I don't know. But it's a mob with provocative intent, a bunch of vigilantes. And they come and they don't, they don't even provide a charge to Jesus. True character is revealed in crisis. And I have to ask the question, what happens to our commitments to truth and principle in those moments of crisis? When this, the storm seems to be tearing the boat apart, do we panic? Do we panic and allow our, ourselves to be manipulated by, by emotion or, or people or circumstances? 
Or do we respond with a, a sure-footed anchor of faith? An anchor that is rooted in God's purposes and his promises. I think too easily we are swept away by the frenzy of the crowd. You very well know the, that we have a crowd mentality in our culture, do we not? And it's so easily, easy for us to get wrapped up in that and forget what our principles are. Forget what our commitments are. We have to recognize that we ourselves are so easily tempted to just go along with the crowd. We don't recognize the ramifications then of our actions and our words. Deceit has a way of compounding itself and, and until, until a person is capable of doing what they never imagined they would do. We read earlier that Judas was looking for an opportune time. He knew Jesus' patterns, his devotional life. He knew where he could intercept him. Even there in this place that had been a sacred place of prayer. And now he has given instructions to those that have come along with him. And said, the, the one to whom I kiss, that is the person that you are, are to apprehend. That word kiss in that initial instructions comes from the word it, phileo. It is a kiss that is given in courtesy to a friend or a disciple to his master. But the next word in the next verse is, is very different. Verse 45, and after coming, he immediately went to him, that is Jesus, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. And the word that is used here is katafileo. It's a different word. It means to kiss over and over. It's a, it's, it's a statement of, of deep affection it's almost as if Judas can't help himself. He has gone so far and he is wrapped up in this deceit in such a manner that he, he, he can't stop himself. And he lets it out. He doubles down. In Matthew 26, um, Matthew records that Judas says, Rabbi, Rabbi, or hail, Rabbi. He doubles down. On one level, it's, it's inconceivable, or it is conceivable, let me say, that Judas may not have thought that he was ever capable of this. Matthew records in chapter 27, Judah's remorse afterwards. He says, then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, 
he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned and betrayed innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed and went away and hanged himself. Suddenly, he was in deeper than he ever thought he would go. Let's read on. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But a certain one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. It's interesting, Mark doesn't identify who that is, but John and Luke do. Take a wild guess. Peter, impetuous Peter. It's, it's an impulsive act. But it's rooted in his good intention to stand by his oath, right? But he puts himself and everyone with him in harm's way. And he risks derailing the mission that Jesus is on. It's interesting that there is a fine line here between this act of impulsive love and the act of impulsive affection that we started with this morning, with the woman breaking the vial and pouring out the contents of this expensive scented oil on Jesus' head. There's a fine line between them. Both are, are motivated by by love and love that could be considered even impulsive. It just wells up and expresses itself. But hers is timely. Hers is appropriate. Peter's may have good intention behind it, but his timing is way off. And his methodology is not at all with who Jesus is and what his ministry has, has been shown to be. Timing and method are extremely important to the work of God. I think we need to take that away. The solution to the anxiety in the midst of this situation is, again, the anchor that we put our faith in the purposes and the promises of God, not in, in the moment. That's what roots us and keeps us from flying off the edge. Let's go on. And Jesus answered to them, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as, a, as against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but this has happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Jesus is asking, is this really necessary? Is all of this, this force and, and scandal necessary? 
And he answers his own question. He says, this has happened to fulfill the scripture. It's part of God's purpose. It's the display of his promises at work. And in the midst of that moment, Jesus is not panicked, but very, very much the picture of peace. John chapter 14, Jesus says of himself, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. So don't let your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. It's the peace of God that is supernatural that imposes itself there in that moment through Jesus. And verse 51 And a certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him. But he left the linen sheet behind and escaped naked. (laughs) Okay. It's interesting that Mark is the only one who records this piece of information. And it's, it's reasonable conjecture that Mark is writing about himself. It's very possible, we look at at Acts 12, that uh, Mark's mother was a a wealthy woman. It's very possible that that Mark uh, may have been at the Last Supper because it may have been in the upper room of his mother's home. We don't know for sure. Very possible that Mark followed the disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane or got caught up in the crowd that was going to apprehend Jesus. The bottom line is that um, he was likely there. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this for us today? What does this account mean for us as individuals and as a church family. Number one, I'd like to say again that that Mark devotes over a third of his gospel to this final week. And it is it is focused on the passion or the suffering of Christ, the Messiah. And there's something telling about that fact. As believers, we often focus on the resurrection life and surely that is the is the good a good thing and and we are called to walk in the power of the resurrection it's readily available to us in Jesus but too often we forget we neglect to understand that resurrection resurrection power in our lives does not happen apart from death We have to come to the end of ourselves. We've been praying for rebirth, resurrection, revival, restoration, all of these things we've been praying for as a church. But none of these are possible. None of them are possible without coming to the end of ourselves. You see, the most important event that any believer can attend in his life or her life is his or her own funeral. 
coming to the end of ourselves is absolutely necessary for us to experience the fullness that God desires to extend to us on the other side. Arrival at the end of ourselves is the beginning of resurrection. So if if we apply this truth to our church today, given where we are, we must arrive at the end of ourselves, at the end of our insistence that things must go as I wish. We must arrive at the end of our resistance to things that don't fit our personal comfort. We must arrive at the end of our persistence of holding on to the past. We must arrive at the end of our transmittance of gossip that, and points of view that pit us against each other. We must arrive at the end of the existence of idols in our midst. Idols that may be personal or even public. Idols that are laced with religious overtones and those enshrined in our spiritual past. And we cannot tolerate the coexistence of pride and piety. They don't mix, they don't go together. Self-saturated spirituality and humble faith don't mix. They cannot live side by side and result in resurrection. God's promise is that he will accomplish his purposes, his purposes in his time, in his way, for his glory. I know many of us are tired. We're tired of waiting on God to send us what we're convinced we need. I wonder, however, is God waiting on us? Waiting on us to come to the end of ourselves? In truth, that's the preparation he requires for the resurrection that he desires. Would you stand with me? Lord, this morning we confess to you that in the midst of pressure, we too often allow fear to take hold. And we have to say, Lord, this pressure, this idea of coming to the end of ourselves and yielding to your purposes, your plan, is something that is difficult for us to get a hold of. I know that there is a whole lot more there than we can even express. I pray, Lord, that you would 
you would truly move among us and take us on that personal journey with you. That personal journey of coming to the end of ourselves so that we might experience the fullness of the resurrection. We pray that as individuals and we pray that as a body, as your church. In Jesus' name we pray.